you have your Bibles, please open in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 and 17. I actually do like having you guys closer because I can see you guys more. I can feel like you're close to me as well as like being so far. And like, I know there's a little speaker here, but it's nice that you guys are closer. It feels more family-like, you know. Like we're, you know, one body. We're, you know, Bible study. So this evening we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. 1 John chapter, 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. I want to begin by reading the text for us. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remain in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again to be able to come this week, uh, and this Friday night, to study your word. And I pray that you can give us a, um, an attentive ear. Lord, may we be, um, may we be focused during this time, may you, may you remove all types of distractions and even uh, things that might be uh, pressing in our hearts and our minds that for this time as we study your word that you would uh, alleviate those uh, so that we can um, learn and know more about you in hopes that we can grow in Christ's likeness. Thank you for this time that we have in your son's name. Amen. A few years ago, when I visited China, I went to this mall and they sold a whole bunch of electronics there. Uh, it was kind of cool because it, it seemed like from a distance like every electronic that's ever made is in this one mall. And at the time, the very first iPad came out. I don't know if you remember what the first iPad looked like, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like this thin. It was pretty chunky and it, was not, it wasn't as big in terms of the screen, but it was a little bit tiny. And I've seen it before. Uh, before I went to the, this trip in China, I've been to the Apple store. I picked it up and it was like, oh, this is really cool. It's just like a huge iPhone, but it's cool because it's bigger and, you know, you could put read stuff on it um, as if that never existed before. But, you know, I was just like, cool, Apple made a new product. Um, but so then when I went to this place in China, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to look at it again. And when I picked up the iPad that was there, it felt different. It felt lighter for some reason and it seemed like the screen wasn't centered in fact the apple logo was not in the middle and in the back there was this weird little almost like opening and it's like this is not normal and it felt a lot cheaper it's because it was fake it, it was awkward and then i remember and then my fan when my family members saw me holding it and like observing it I was like oh i'm looking for that because i've been wanting to buy one of these since the kit this came out recently and I was trying to convince my family member, this is not the real thing. And uh, the guy that was there, he got upset. 
because I was trying to convince him, you know, like I was trying to convince my family member not to buy this. He was trying to convince me to tell him, you know, to tell my family member to buy it. And he was furious. And we were going back and forth. I was trying to explain to him that why this is not the real thing. Like, look, this is, this doesn't even, this, this like screen is off. It does not, the color, even the apps, like they don't have these apps, like native apps. That I remember the logo, the setting logos look different. Everything was off and he was, he was furious. He got so mad that he threatened himself. He said, if this is not the real iPad, you can call the cops and they can arrest me because we don't sell fake things here. And I chuckled because right behind him, there was a sign that said, Sony iPad. I was like, okay, obviously this guy's bluffing. So I said, you should totally call the cops to see what happens. I wanted to see what the cops would do. You know, it's like, oh, are you going to arrest this guy for selling fake products? And, um, and at, at some point I realized maybe he doesn't understand me when I say this is real. I think he thinks that this is like, when I say it's fake, as if I'm somehow talking about this like phantom device. So we began arguing over the word real. Like, what does it mean that this thing is real? And I was trying to explain to him, no, it's not that I don't believe it's real, like as if it's not there, as if I'm making something up. But I'm saying that it's not real in the sense it's not authentic. It's not the, the, made by the original makers. That it's physically here, but it's not the real thing. Uh, but he kept on insisting, no, this is both physically real and it's, and it's real in its authenticity. And even though there was some glaring, obvious evidence that it's not real, this guy still claims that this, this fake iPad is the real thing. And I can't help but think that this is probably the same for some of you when it comes to your own salvation. That you are physically here, but it's not the real thing. Yes, I know you're presently here and you, like, and you admit to the things that you're followers of Jesus Christ, but is that faith truly authentic? Is your faith the real deal? For some of us, the, we get presented with very glaring evidence that we are not saved, but yet, despite all these evidences, some people still would believe that their faith is genuine. I heard this little quote, and I thought it was kind of funny. It said, just because you put a kitten in an oven doesn't make the kitten a biscuit. And I was to switch that into a little more Christian and more to us is this. Just because a person goes to church doesn't make them a Christian. If you're just here with us for the first time or you haven't been with us for a while, we're going through the book of First John. And this book is a book on assurance. And there are different ways in which people can test to see if they are truly in the faith. And the main thing is your love for the Lord. It's not so much your knowledge of God, although that you need that, because only we, we know God through the truth of his word, but really it's your affections. What do you love most? When, as you grow in your knowledge of God's word, you should also grow in your love for God's word. And out of that love, out of the alpha of your life, you will live a life that is filled with love. Assurance is a fruit of faith. The opposite is also true. If there is no fruit of faith, then there will be no assurance in your life. If you have no true desire to love God and to know God, or if you just want to just know about him but have no desire to pursue him, then you need to conclude that there's something off there, that you probably are not a true follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to be assured in your faith, you need to cling on to the indicatives of scriptures, 
the commands of Scripture so that you can obey the imperatives. So what does this mean? It means that you hold on to the truths that are in Scripture so that you can live these things out. We cannot obey God's word unless we know these indicatives. You need to know the descriptions about God before you can have a direction towards a life of Christ-likeness. You need to know the doctrines of God before you know how God's word can dictate your life. You need to know the truth and the meanings of Scripture before, the, before you grow and live out Scripture. You need to know God's word before you can understand how to live out God's word. That's what we're going to look at this evening. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on, on account of his name. John reminds uh, these different generations of believers. John's writing to church to remind them that their sins is forgiven by the Father. Their salvation is given to them by the Father. We're all forgiven for an, an account of God's name. We're all forgiven for God's name's sake. In other words, we were forgiven for the glory of God. He progresses in this letter that I'm, I'm writing these things to you. This is similar to what he said earlier in chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 7. Again, it's similar to what he said the other two times. It's designed to turn your attention to what he's about to say. Notice in Nasby, it says, because your sins have been forgiven for you. This word have been, these two words, it's in the perfect tense. And in the, uh, that, what that means is that their confession of Jesus Christ should impact them today. There should be a new life. The moment that you gave up your life to the Lord, there should be a practical change in the way that you live out day to day. This isn't something that you heard once in the past, and then you continue living as if you've never heard of it. No, rather you know God's word, and then you live that out. We are free from the damnation consequences of our sin, but we are forgiven for his name's sake. In the Greek, literally, it means on the account of his name. That's why in the Christian Standard Bible, we use that, on the account of his name. And we understand this as a doctrine of imputation. Imputation is an, is an accounting term that means that someone, if you imagine like a bank account, someone that has a whole bunch of money in their bank account, transferring their money to someone that has nothing in their bank account. Theologically, then we understand that because of our sins, we have nothing but debt in our account. In fact, we're, it's not just blank, but we have, we're in the negative. But Jesus, who is perfect, is one who gave his righteousness to us so that in our account, we're no longer in the negative or, or equal balance, but we have an abundance. Because of what Christ has given us, we have his righteousness. Again, we're not talking about material here, we're talking about our spiritual standing, our moral, or we're morally before God, perfect. Because Jesus gave us his righteousness. Our righteousness is from his account. This is how we were saved. God saved us by giving us his righteousness on his, from his son's account so that we no longer have to suffer the consequences because we failed to pay the debt that we deserve. So what does this mean for us? means we don't have to go to hell anymore. We don't have to suffer God's wrath. Every sin is paid for. There is only forgiveness in Christ. Our slate is clear. We are as white as snow. We are in his eyes now clean and perfect. Sin is removed as far as the eye can see. And in Micah seven nineteen, it talks about how our sin will be casted into the ocean, into the depths of the sea. 
what great blessing and benefits there are in ter- knowing that we are free from the bondage of sin and now free to live for Christ. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have conquered the evil one. The implication is that the people were at one point far from God, but now they know God. And you now know him that was from the beginning. And this word know can be translated as to know him or uh, to be known by him. Some, some people debate, what's this word, him? Is it knowing the Father or is it knowing Christ? And I would, I would argue, based on the context, it's Christ. This means that you're bought, into some, uh, you're bought into a saving relationship with God through Christ. You and I at one point have no idea who God is, but through Jesus Christ, we're, we know God now. We're known by God. I notice this phrase, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. We were at one point in darkness. Before we were saved, we were known as children of darkness. We were controlled by sin. We had no other option in our life but to go into sin. But now we are free. Satan no longer has any control or dominion over us. He can hold us no longer. There's, no, there's nothing that the devil can do to change our status or standing before the Lord. And this word overcome is this victory language. It's speaking of the fact that we are that we've defeated this, that we've overcome, and we have victory. Our new relationship with God means that we have a new relationship with sin as well. We now have the ability to overpower sin. We can say no to sin. The new birth means that we have new desires and new affections, and the old desires are done away with. Although we still struggle and fall into sin from time to time, that doesn't mean we no lo- we are no longer His. That means that we're not separated just because we fall into sin. And no matter how bad our sin is in our new birth, we will never lose that standing because Christ's death on the cross pays for all of our shortcomings. Notice, I have written to you children because you know the Father. So why does he repeat himself here? You notice there's a change in tense in the New American Standard. It goes... First by saying, I'm writing to you. And then, and then here's, I've written. He's giving the summary. The summary here is here because he wants to impress the truth of God into our minds and our hearts. We need to hear it over and over and over again that we have now a right relationship with the Lord. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. This means that, there are, that at one point we were people that we're in sin, we were overpowered by sin, now we overcome the evil one. It is both a false teacher in the present age and as well as in the angelic plane. Christians are people that are not thwarted by the temptations and teachings of the evil one. Remember, the context, there were people that were Gnostics. There were people that believed that the physical things are bad and the spiritual things are good, and they believe that Jesus cannot be a physical being because physical is bad and only spiritual is good. Uh, so they, were, had, they had all these false teachings, and John is saying that you have overcome these false teachers. All of their doctrines are doctrines of demons. John is encouraging them that they have resisted these false teachers and the evil one. All false teaching, all false religion, all false ideologies are from and of the devil. Again, he writes, I have written to you children because you know the Father. This phrase, again, is to, to, to generally to all Christians that have uh, that know who the God the Father is. To know the Father is to be like the Father. Spiritual maturity 
moves in the same direction towards a deeper, richer, and fuller understanding of God, and that should look, it should be evident in the way that we live our lives. Every child resembles their own father. I had a professor once that shared a story about how someone came up to him and said, hey, you need to check your kid. Your kid is rude and mean, and, and uh, he's, like, he's listing all these bad things about him. And my professor responded, well, that's because he spends all his time with your kid. And the implication is that because his son spends uh, time with his kid, and his kid's influenced by his father, he's telling his father, this guy, to go and check himself. I don't know if it's the most godly response, but it's a humorous response because it does show you that kids emulate their own fathers. Jesus said the same thing about the Pharisees. He said that they, he called the Pharisees children of the devil, that they are like their father. And we need to ask our, ourselves, which, who, do we, who is our father? Do we look like our father? Do we look like our heavenly father? Whose conduct do you find yourself modeling after? Do you find yourself modeling after the devil or do you find yourself modeling after the Lord? All these attributes that are modeled, that all these people that, that try to model themselves after the Lord, their, their lives are filled with darkness. But at the same time, if you follow the Lord, if you follow his son that gave us a perfect example, then you're walking in the light. Verse 14. Again, this seems like a repetition here. I have written to you children because you have, you have to come to know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong. God's word remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. Again, this is a, almost like a repeated statement. And the main difference between 13 and 14 is this one phrase, that the, the word of God abides in you. The word abides refer to the word of God or divine message revealed to them by Jesus Christ. The source of the believer has no, has, has no cha- hasn't changed since the beginning when they heard God's word. Any believer may still overcome the broken, fallen world if they are carefully holding tightly and abiding the, the word of God. I've said this over and over again. I think the reason why John is doing this is because he wants us to remember. He's doing this for the church here. And then for us, we understand that we need to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel daily. It's something that we need to do regularly. It's so, we're so easily swayed by the d- distractions and temptations of life. We fail to meditate and dwell on truth. Think about this. What, what was the last thing that you learned about God? And how much time do you spend dwelling on that this past week? Think about the message you heard on Sunday. What was the passage? And what was the, the, the main points? And how did you apply that this last week? This is why we constantly need to go back to the word of God and go back to the gospel to remind ourselves what is truth. Because if we aren't dwelling on truth, then we'll live a life that's filled with lies. What was the last sermon you heard? What was the last podcast? What was the last thing you read? Are you applying these things into your life? If you ever wonder why you keep falling into sin, it is because you either forgot You've forgotten the gospel truth or you don't care about the truth to remind yourself of the gospel. We need to constantly dive deeper into into the theology, the riches of the gospel and of salvation if we want to have a greater understanding of how we can live our life according to God. So if you, now these are these indicatives here. These are what uh, uh, John was trying to say. And if you understand these indicatives, then naturally the following verses will apply to you. The following verses are our imperatives. What we need to do with this, there are, so our outline, that was a very long intro, but our two uh, points of outline for us to hang our thoughts is this. 
that you do not love the way of the world, and you don't understand that the world is also passing away. There are two imperatives. After grasping all of the indicatives, if you understand the gospel, if the gospel is clear in your mind, then these two should be a natural outflow of your life. So the first one is do not love the way of the world. A Christian that understands the indicatives will not love the way of the world. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You'll notice that John tells them not to love the world nor the things of the world. In this world, this word world, it's not the physical, physical world because that's, because, you know, God made the world and the world is good. Rather, he's speaking of, of, of philosophies and worldviews, different ideas, things that are from the world. Remember that there were these Gnostics that believed that the physical world is bad. And John is not, John's trying to counter them by saying physical world is not what the problem is. It's the ideas that come from the world that makes us love the things of the world. It's the earthly systems, the earthly ideas, the earthly thoughts. You'll see that this phrase, do not love. This word love here, it's, it's agape, which is the same word that we've seen over in the past. And the word itself is a neutral word. The problem is not what we, it's not, the problem is not the, the love aspect. It's not like, like having affections are wrong, but it's the object of that love. What, is the, what are the things that we love? That's what makes it a sin. This is in the present tense, meaning this is something that people do regularly. What is something that you love regularly in your life? What are the things that you have this, that marks, what marks your continual affection? What is the greatest thing that you love in your life? If someone was to measure what your love is in terms of a distance, how far would it go? Again, the problem is not that you are loving things, but rather who or what do you love most? When a believer loves God and loves his brother and sister, that love is what pleases God because it's, a properly, it's properly motivated and it's correctly directed. But when, when the word love is used to place on anything except for the things that God commands, it's misapplying the human affections and emotions that will ultimately lead to their own downfall and eventual death. So the word love, again, is neutral, but the object of that love is what makes the action honoring or displeasing to the Lord. Love is more than just emotional feeling. Love requires a commitment of time and resources. What you love most, you'll commit your time and your resources and your energy and your focus and, and, and attention. You'll focus everything on it. Anything that you want to do well, you, you have to understand that it takes a lifetime of commitment. Uh, sometimes even when we think of prodigies, the first thing we think about somehow somehow comes naturally, right? Like, like, like they're Peter Parker or something. They get bitten by a spider. The next thing they could like do flips and stuff. But that's not how real life is. Even people that are prodigies, they take time to master the craft. They may be able to pick up things quickly or pick up things that other people will not be able to pick up. But it takes devotion. It takes time to, to master the piano or, or, or a sport or anything. It takes uh, time and focus. In the same way, when we think about our Christian life, how much are you willing to put time in, in growing in, in your love for the Lord, and your knowledge of the Lord? You need to devote your life in growing like Christ. Those that are mature are people who commit their life in loving, knowing, and practicing the word of God. I have seen young believers that were saved in the last five years that are more mature than people that have been saved for 30 years. 
And the reason is not the time. Time is not the problem. It's the, the depth. What is it that they love most? What do they ground themselves in? And we see that in Psalm chapter 1, verse uh, 1 to 3, it speaks about how the righteous are, are the people that plant themselves by the waters. Let me turn to it. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Those that are close to God, those that are growing and in, 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 in being fed by the word of God will grow to be like Christ. The command then, it's quite obvious. If you love Christ the way that you should, you must devote all your time and energy to knowing him. Our allegiance cannot be divided. It is always one or the other. It's either life or death. It's either light or darkness. It's either God or the world. And as Christians, we understand that our citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom of God is always against the kingdom of this world. The ideas and thoughts of heaven are always going to be in opposition with the thoughts of this world. To devote your life to one thing means that you neglect other things. Or we understand even in, in the way of like, you know, we're using sports and, and mu- music for illustration. People that want to do good in those things have to say no to other things. To pledge your allegiance to one is to declare war against the other. We see that in James chapter 4, verse 4, where it tells us that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. We're enemies of God if we're allies with the world. Again, our war is not with the material world in and of itself. In fact, the world is, is, is morally neutral in that sense. It's good, but it doesn't, it's not good or bad. It's just, it means good itself. It doesn't dictate um, morally good or bad. But again, what makes things evil are the thoughts that come behind and the focus on it. We see in, uh, in Scripture where Paul tells us not to have our minds captive by the, by the, the, the thinking of the world. So we need to be people that, are not, that do not love the world. Not only are Christians called not to love the world, but second, they are also not to love the fleeting lust of the world. Not only are we supposed to be people that, not, that, aren't, that don't have their desire to love the world, but we're also people that need to not love the fleeting lust of the world. We we'll see this from 16 to the end of the, the uh, section 17. Verse 16. For everything in the world... The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Verse 16, it's, it's, this verse clarifies exactly what loving the world looks like. It gives us some specifics here. Uh, again, the problem not the physical world, but rather the sin uh, that makes the things of the world into idols of our own hearts. The three things that are listed here are actually general categories of sin. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the uh, flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Uh, the, these things are not from the Lord, but rather is from the world. And what's interesting, when you look at this list, this is exactly what the devil used to tempt Adam and Eve. 
when he was in the garden, he looked at that fruit. It was as desirable to the flesh, as desirable to the eyes, and it gave them a sense of pride when he said that you can be like God. You know, they, uh, the devil used exactly the same, same things. I think that's what John is trying to do. He's trying to try and make you think back to that moment, thing that caused mankind to fall because they were lured by these things. And the reality is because of that, we now sin. We don't, we don't become, we're not sinners, and then when we sin, no, we sin. And we, we, don't be, we don't sin and become sinners. Rather, we are sinners because we sin. You know, there's this first phrase here, the lust of the flesh. Sometimes when we think of lust of the flesh, we first assume that's some sort of sexual sin. And although it's true, but it's not only that. Uh, it's not only in terms of the sexual realm. The word lust here is actually, the, uh, like the word love, it's a neutral term. Uh, this word lust is actually the same word that's used for elders that want to aspire to eldership, people who want to be elders. This is, uh, this is the same word in the Greek. So again, it's not so much the affection, but rather is it the, is the, affection, is the object of the affection. Is it something that's pleasing to the Lord or is it something that offends God? Again, this phrase does have sexual connotation, but it's not limited to it. Rather, it's any impulse that draws people towards sin. And in Galatians chapter 5, there's a list of sins that we know as the fruits of the flesh. Galatians 5, verse 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunken carousing, or anything similar. I'm warning you that these, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are all lists of things that, uh, that the lust of the flesh is part of. Uh, the, these lists of the fruit of the fruit of the flesh are primary characteristics of people that are part of the world and are living in darkness. So when you look at these type of lists, are there things in your life that matches up with the lust of the world? You know, like one of them is outbursts of anger. Do you find yourself losing your temper quickly? Are you envious? Do you want something that doesn't belong to you? This word sorcery is, is, is strange because it's always like Harry Potter or whatever. No, the, the word is actually pharmakia, which means actually drugs, things that alter your mind. Back then, that's what they used to try. Uh, they, they, they call it sorcery because when people consume certain things, they will see the spirits. You know, are, you, are you marked by jealousy? Are you marked by, by strife? Do you find yourself fighting against one another or always wanting to fight with other people? These are all things that are lust of the flesh. And if that defines you, then you need to see whether you are of the Lord or of the world. Notice the next category, the lust of the eyes. The eyes are often the, the gateway for the way people get tempted. The eyes are said to be the windows into the, uh, to the soul, but it's also the window to the world that draws the heart of man and woman into it's the thing that people that the world can climb into so they can infect the heart as well. It also reveals what's inside. The eyes are often part of the body that, were, that begins the sinful cravings. This eyes is often what leads temptation to heart and the minds of in the and in, and the minds of people. Again, it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, but it's just that uh, it's whatever makes our heart focus on things of the world instead of Christ. The lust of eyes can be things like look, be, just being materialistic. Or you look at something, you want that, you crave it. 
Um, you look at uh, a car that you want, or you want some sort of degree or prestige or, or label or title. These are things that you see with your eyes that you want, and you, that you desire those things, the things of the world, more than you desire the things of heaven. The lust of eyes has the ability to make us want to focus our days on temporal enjoyment without giving any thoughts for any future implications. And I think this is one of the most, the biggest struggle in our life because we live in a day where cell phones are constantly drawing and, and fighting for our attention. You know, sometimes your phone will tell you how long you've been on your phone and even what app you're on. You know, and sometimes when you're scrolling through these things, it makes you discontent. And you feed your discontentment with the things that you see. And you, go, and you crave it with the things that you see with your eyes. So you need to figure out, if you want to not be discontent, you might need to get rid of certain things. You need to cut out those things in your life. Again, the things that we look at in and of itself are not bad. But when it becomes an idol, that's when it becomes sin. When, it's, when, it's, and when, it's, when, if, when we put God below the things that is from the world, it becomes sin. One person phrases it this way, the, love, it's the lust of the eyes is the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. It's the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. You see something that in and of itself is fine, but you love it so much because it gives you more satisfaction than the Lord. This last one, the boastful pride of life, is another way translated as vain glory. The pride that comes from giving a false value to things of life. The, the pride that results in you obtaining yourself to boost your elevation and status and, 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 and some sort of public standing or perception by other people. This is the kind of desire that makes people want to want you or want to be like you. This is a grave sin against the Lord because all glory belongs to God and God stands alone. There is no other God beside him. But when we want to boast our own pride, we elevate ourselves, or at least we want to elevate ourselves to the level of God. How this looks like in our lives are usually the type of lifestyle we have or marital status. Or for some, it may be single. Some people may be marriage. Others, just material things that we have or the places that we go or even the things that we eat how much money a person makes or how much a, um, a person, uh, you know, just anything that makes people look at them and, and envy them and they almost idolize them. These are all sins that are actually matters that offend the Lord. Pride, prestige, power, position, or placing life is nothing when it comes to the kingdom of God. They, these things count for nothing compared to what we have in Christ. The value system of this world, what this world loves and what they pursue is nothing in the eyes of the Lord. So when you look at these three, lust of the eyes, lust of flesh, boast of pride of life, which one do you gravitate towards? Which one do you find yourself struggling against? Again, these are three general, huge categories. In some ways, you can, tell, you can place all of our sins in one of the three categories. And if you were to be honest, we all struggle with all three. But some maybe more than others. You might struggle with one more than the other. What are things that you're viewing that is feeding your flesh or, or feeding your eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? Verse 17, and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. All the things in the world are passing away. And the main 
reason on why John was write this and to warn them is that what these Gnostics and these false teachers are trying to do is make them lure, lure themselves to love the world. Remember early on, uh, John said that these people are sinners, that these guys live life that are, are filled with sin and things that, and their affection are towards just their own fleshly desires. Even though they don't care about the physical realm, they still live in a sin as if the world matters. And there's a comparison to those that are living in the will of the world and the will of the Lord. The things that this life has to offer are empty imitations of what God has in store for us in glory. The world was designed, and, but it was built with, with, uh, with a built-in design flaw. That the world is passing away, and it's temporary. If you love the world, the world was going to disappoint you. Because everything in this life perishes. And things of the world seem to be of great value in the beginning, but become worthless when compared to the eternal value in doing the will of God. Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has defeated the world that is opposed to God and has secured eternal life for those who believe. And if you invest in these things, you'll find that there's no returns. There's nothing long-lasting that returns. I have a missionary friend in Albania, and I asked him about, you know, what was the time there like when he's uh, ministering? He's, he's there for like almost three decades now. And he told me that this one year, they didn't have a short-term ministry team because there was this massive evac of, of in, like, I guess it would be immigrants in the Albanian eyes, basically all foreigners to them. And the reason why that is, is because there was a whole bunch of foreigners that came into, the, into Albania and started doing this pyramid scheme. And it wrecked the economy to the point where they wanted to find any foreigner and get and like make them uh, pay. And they, he, my, the missionary friend said, "Yeah, I remember I had to my family. I had to go on top of a roof, and we were helicopter helicopter land. They had to get out through a helicopter because they wanted to get rid of every foreigner. They wanted to, you know, get back what they lost." These people that invested in this pyramid scheme thought that they're going to have so much in this life, but in the end, there were no returns. In the same way, if you spent your life and time on things of this world, you're investing in something that will have no returns. If you love the things of this world, these things are going to either be stolen from you, they're gonna, it's just going to decay, or it's going to pass away. It's interesting to know that you know, these things that we love is true, but we still choose to follow and want the things of the world. Even though nothing in this world lasts, there's still a big part of us that still chooses to pursue it. What you buy, what you eat, what you acquire in this life will not last. Only investing things of heaven will give you something that will not pass away and will give you true and lasting joy. If you spend all your time and energy on these things, you're losing opportunity to invest in things that matter. Uh, I've shared, I think some of you guys know, like my wife and I, last year at least, we went on a whole bunch of trips. Uh, it's like conferences and weddings and family trips and stuff. And uh, one of the things we notice when we go to the airport, and some of you guys might notice this too, is that people don't decorate the airport. You know, people don't bring like a twin-size mattress through the, t- through the TSA so they can make the airport their home. You know, every, the, at best, you may see parents bring a little pack-and-play for their kids to sleep in, but you'll never see people try to bring in like a queen-size mattress through the little electrical uh, metal detectors. It's because it's not their home. You never see people putting their laundry up or anything like that because it's weird. Because they know that they're just passing through. Yet in our own lives, we find ourselves decorating our temporal home. Right? Just even look at your own room. What are the things that you're 
putting up just so that you can display. And again, these things aren't bad in and of itself, but if you find yourself spending so much time just decorating your own room or decorating your cars or, your, or planning all these different things that you want in this life, understand that you will lose all of them when death comes. Be careful in decorating this temporal home. When God takes us from this world, we can't take anything with us. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I like to do for fun, when we like to play Mario Kart, and there's a game in that game where you can like blow each other up and, and the one who has the most gold coin wins. I don't know why my wife loved that game. Like she's like, well, let's, let's just get the coin, I have a coin collector or whatever, and it's like these gold coins, and whoever has the most gold coin wins. She's pretty good at it. And at the end, they tell you, like, oh, you've got X amount of gold coins, and then you have this golden trophy. And how absurd would it be if my wife and I were asking the, the Switch, hey, where's our gold coins? You know, all the stuff that we've worked for in this game, why can't we get these things out? You need to give us these gold coins and, and gold trophies and all of that. All of the, we've, all the stuff that we've stressed out on those 20 minutes, they just go away in the end, and then there's nothing to show for it. Again, this is, you have to think of your life and the things that you pursue in these terms. That all the things that you try to acquire, no matter how much energy you put into it, no matter how much effort and time, these things are just things that will pass away. Again, I'm not saying these things are bad in and, of your, in and of itself, but if you devote your entire life to love these things, you will lose it the moment that you die. Nothing that you acquire in this life will, have, will make it to eternity. And how sad is it by the end of your life you find yourself spent and wish that you did not spend so much time on those things. You know, oftentimes I see the people, especially elderly people, they will go through some sort of, they'll, they'll have some sort of medical emergency. And afterwards, when they get out of the hospital, they usually, Christians at least, they're, they're usually more, way more focused. They have a greater desire to do evangelism. They suddenly have a greater desire to do discipleship. It's because they were close to death, and they realized all of the things that, that they thought was important at one point no longer matters when they're close to death. And we need to have that, that fear, or even that sober-mindedness, that the things in this world, in this life, is short. So we want you to do all things to invest in kingdom work. Whatever it may be in your relationship, do, like, use your relationship to, to demonstrate Christ-likeness. You know, evangelize the lost. Invest in younger Christians as, when you still have a lot of time in your hand, when you guys have a lot more free time. Spend your life on things of eternal value. Use your money wisely. Use your time wisely. If God was to ask you to give an account for all that you've done with the resources given you, would he be pleased by it? Or would you say, no, but Lord, I, I just love to have this one thing. I just needed to buy this. I just had to go to, on this trip. How are you going to give an account to the Lord with the life that he's given you? Again, I, I, the person that's from the world will, be, will, will love the things of the world. They have no desire to do things that are pleasing to the Lord. But the believer, the one that loves the Lord, will find that they're going to, use, they're going to be mindful of how they spend their life. The assurance of the believer is that they are faithfully doing the will of God. He writes at the end of verse 17, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. John makes this link between a person's confession of faith and in their conduct. Doing the will of God is a link to God's mission in the gospel. 
We're all called to live like Jesus, who wholly devoted his life doing the will of the Father, even if it meant losing his life. And I, I am afraid that sometimes we don't have that mentality. We'll say we want to follow Jesus except when it costs us. So when it, if it makes us uncomfortable, that's something I'm not willing to do. But yet, Jesus was willing to do the will of the Father, even if it meant going on the cross. If you devote your life in pursuing the things of God, that's what's going to be pleasing to the Lord. That means you have a mission-minded. You have your mission-minded. You'll strive to invest in doing things that have eternal value. The wise, mature, and saved person, then, is someone that invests in the future and does the will of God. Be content with what you have and use the rest of your life for the kingdom of God. Spend time pouring into both believers and non-believers. Do something that has eternal significance. Stop wasting your time on pursuing things that are just passing away. And if you look at these, this, uh, these two, is written to have a stark contrast between the love of God and love of the world. Verse 15 says that if you if the love of the world and that comes from the world, then the world's passing away. But if you look at the contrast, if you love the Father, and you're, you're of the Father, and you will and you do the will of the Father, you will remain forever. So what how are you living out your life? Is it the will of God? If you find yourself devoting your life to loving anything but God, you need to repent. Your greatest affection and devotion must be on God and God alone. And we need to remain in this love with Jesus because the world will never satisfy us. Several years ago, there was a six flag, and I think it's somewhere in the south. Uh, there was a kid that rode on, I think it was the Batman roller coaster, and he dropped his hat. He left, he, when he was on the ride, his hat flew off, and he decided to go back and get it. So he had climbed up these two huge fences, and when he got to his hat, the roller coaster went by and decapitated him. And uh, people are obviously freaked out. Like, can you imagine sitting in the rhinos and there's like a head just flies by? And what's sad is that this, this hat didn't value much. It wasn't valuable. It's a sad story for us, but it's a cautionary tale for us who's willing to give up so much of our lives for nothing. And I wonder how many of you are like that. You're just pursuing the things, not knowing that the things that you're pursuing doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any eternal value. You, you could just let these things go. A, a person can lose everything when they pursue nothing and let that not be named among us. This is what John tells us, not to love the things of the world because the things of the world are passing away. May we be a people who are mindful of the brevity of life and not love the way of the world and love the lust of the world, but rather we do the will of God knowing that that direction, that the life of faithfulness will give us eternity. Again, I'm not saying you work your way to salvation, but I'm saying that if you truly are saved, then you'll be demonstrating how you live out your life. May we be people who love God and pursue him with our hearts and not, make, and not waste our time pursuing the things of the world that will only lead to decay and death. Let's pray. Father God, we're so easily lured, tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
Lord, we know that um, we're really fickle in that way, that it's so easy for us to, to wander, Lord. Lord, please keep us. We know that those who are living obediently to you are, are able to do that because of your grace, and we ask you for more grace and a greater love for you, that you become someone that, that we cherish more than this world has to offer, that you give us joy and satisfaction in ways that nothing in this world can. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful that you've um, allowed us to know you through your word. And, and we know how we can find purpose and meaning and, um, and all uh, things good from your word. And may we devote our time and our efforts to it. Lord, it's easy for us um, to, be, to want to do other things. And Lord, if there, may you make us mindful of that. May you make us mindful of how we spend our time um, and our thoughts and our actions. Um, help us uh, with our sin cause us to have a greater love for you so that we can live and walk faithfully. We thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Thanks for your time. We have our discussion groups now. Um, it's a lot bigger than last week. So if you guys were not here in the past, we've been doing these discussion groups with the same group of people. Uh, if you are not part of a group, uh, just find maybe a smaller group to join. If, and if there's a whole bunch of you that have not joined a group, then join that group. Just create a group together. Um, yeah, and just discuss. Uh, we have some questions for you just to, uh, so we can talk about it. And this, this is like gender specific for some of you who are new here. Uh, but three questions. Uh, how have I re represented the Father this past week? Um, question number two, how am I doing in my pursuit of heavenly things this past week? And third question, how can I be better at letting go of the things of this world this coming week? Again, this is really just a response to what we've learned. Uh, we call ourselves lovers of God and lovers of heavenly things. Then there should be uh, practical applications in our own life. It's going to look different for all of you, but I hope that the principles that we've learned in Scripture can change the way that we live our lives for the glory of God.